Good morning. How's everybody doing? Is it a good morning? It's a good morning. Guess what? The world we live in, things aren't so good all the time, are they? It's a pretty broken and messed up place, the world. Saying controversial things out of the gate this morning. Get ready. How on earth do we account for the brokenness and messed upness of the world? I'm getting my words right, too. That's great. If there's beauty everywhere you look, right? It's spring. It's nice out. It's glorious. And side by side with that beauty, there is also what? Chaos. Corruption. Everywhere. What explains that? Sin alone explains the problem that we have as a planet. It explains the Fed. It explains inflation. It explains Joe Biden. It explains everything. It also explains your broken home growing up. It explains the abuse that you suffered. It explains your bad boss, your broken marriage. It explains death and suffering. And it explains your own heart. The fact that not only is this world evil, not only have evil things happened to each of us, but it explains why you yourself do evil things. Why do you do things that are wrong? Why do you hurt other people? Why do you hurt yourself? Why do you rebel against God? Why do you do things you hate? The answer is sin. Romans has the answer to all of this. It explains the problem and it explains the solution. The problem is sin and the solution is Jesus. And today we're talking about suffering. We're talking about where it came from, what it means for us, and what the answer is. And spoilers, the answer is still Sunday school answers, guys. Jesus, thank you. All right. But Jesus is not an answer that allows us to escape real pain and suffering in this life. Do you remember how last week's passage ended? We are heirs with, of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer also with Him. Suffering is intrinsic to the Christian life. Life belongs to us if we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Glory belongs to us if we suffer with Jesus. If. Jake, how can that be? I thought it was all about grace. How can there be conditions? How can there be big ifs? I thought it was about grace. You can't earn it. Jesus did it all. So why is there an if there? Yes, Jesus did it all, and those that Jesus did it all for walk the path that he walked. That's the proof that we belong to Jesus, that we're adopted children of God, and that the grace of God is ours. If we are not putting our sin to death, if we are not suffering with Jesus, we're not His. If we're not taking up our cross and following Jesus, we're not followers of Jesus. If we're not imitating the works of our Father in heaven, we must have a different Father. Because sons, children, imitate their fathers. Grace is only those, uh, for those who are the children of God the followers of Jesus, who walked the path he walked. Today's passage starts there and opens up that idea. We'll begin by reading. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's the first thing. Christians do not deny that suffering is real and that we all face it and that we all have to deal with it. It's part of the human experience and it's especially part of the Christian experience. You have each one of you all suffered in one way or another. You've suffered because you've been sinned against by other people. You have suffered for your own sins. You've dealt with the consequences of them in your life. And you've suffered just because Adam's sin led to judgment that subjected this whole world to suffering, to corruption, to futility. So here's what the Apostle Paul's saying. It's bad. Things are bad. It's not great. But wait until God is done. Because on the other side of suffering, there's glory. We're not there yet, though. All of creation itself is subjected to corruption and futility. How many of you are outdoorsy type of people? Got some big nose in the middle and some, you know. I feel like the outdoorsy people are more over here. Did I get that right? This is the outdoorsy people. You like to go hiking or camping or to the beach to bask in the beauty of what God has made. You're basking in the glory of something that is covered in a shroud that has been subjected still to futility and corruption because of the sin of Adam. All of the glory of this world is a shadow of what it was and what it could have been and what it will be. All of it. That's the truth. So step back and think about that for a second. You love it. How good is God? How generous is God? How free-handed, open-handed is God? God is just. He will judge the earth and everyone in it, but he is not petty. No one who goes to hell will ever be able to look back at all God has given them and done for them and accuse him of being anything less than generous, gracious, and patient. So here's a thought experiment to test how ungrateful we really are. I, was, uh, I saw this little video this past week on Instagram. It was probably ripped off of TikTok, which I don't have because TikTok is uh, an evil Chinese conspiracy to destroy civilization. So instead, I watched my TikTok videos two weeks later on Instagram, like a patriot. And so this guy in this video said something like this. Do you feel down and depressed about your life? Do you feel discouraged about anything? Any discouragement in this room? Yeah, a little bit. What if I wrote you a check right now for a million dollars? Would that change things? Eh? Okay, how about 10 million? 100 million? Would it change things? That's too much? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let's not, let's not let's like get out of hand here. Would it change things? Would it change your level of discouragement or depression? Yeah? Okay. Okay, here's the condition under which I will do that. You have 24 hours, and then you die. So, for the next 24 hours, 
You can have your million dollars. You can have your 10 million. You can have your 100 million. You can have your billion. Who's taking the trade? Who? Anybody? Nobody in this room. Do you realize what you just valued waking up in the morning at? You just put a price tag on it. You just put a price tag on waking up this morning. And you valued it, all of you, over a billion dollars. Everyone in this room says, I'd rather wake up tomorrow morning than have a billion dollars today. Okay. How many days have you woken up? How many days do you have left? Who in this room would trade places today with Warren Buffett? Worth $109 billion. Also, he's 92 years old. Anybody taking that trade? Nobody's taking that trade? What's the price tag you just put on your time? On the breads that you take on getting up in the morning? You just put a huge price tag on that, right? You did. Who gave you that? God did. Every day. Every day. That's why Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? He's talking about eternity. And here we are talking about days. How many days have you gotten out of bed? How many days has God given you? Each and every one of those days is priceless. Billion dollar gift from God that you don't deserve and that you can never repay. God is not petty. God is generous, gracious. And you take it for granted. And you think God owes you more. That's why you wake up grumpy and discouraged and depressed. You think God owes you more than that. You're angry and grumpy when you wake up, and God's not ordered the whole universe to align with your hopes and dreams and desires. And you have the audacity to demand that He do better. And you punish the people you love because God has failed to give you more than He already has. And you forget that you woke up and you would not trade that for a billion dollars. We're ungrateful little brats. That's the truth. All of the world is under a curse because of sin. Death exists in this world because of our sin. Corruption exists in this world because of our sin. We ruined it all. We did that. We brought this all on ourselves. We are responsible for this. We are. Is there suffering? Is there corruption? It's because of Adam. Adam's our first father. Who do we blame? God. We're like children who wake up every morning crying and angry because the sheets, the bed is wet. So we're angry with our parents and angry with the world and sad and crying. We're the ones who wet the bed. That's the reality. The suffering and pain and corruption of this world, instead of making us angry with God, should make us step back and realize just how big of a deal the sin of Adam really was. It was an act of treason against the Most High God and the way He made the world. It was a betrayal of the trust we were given as stewards of this world, as bearers of His image over all of creation. 
We were responsible for all of it, and when Adam fell, it all came crashing down. The sin of Adam was cataclysmic on a universal cosmic scale. Leadership, headship. It's everything. Everything is downstream of headship. Adam was the covenant head of mankind. The world was under Adam's dominion. If you don't like covenant headship, sorry, you don't like the way God made the world. This is just how things work. The proof is all around you. Well, Jake, I feel like we should just be responsible, each one of us, for our own sins alone and everything else and just those things underneath us. Congratulations, you're responsible for that too. And you inherited a, a world from your father, Adam. Adam was responsible. He failed and you failed just like him. So guess what? It just runs in the family. Runs in the family. This is the way the world works. Dads, your sins and decisions impact your families. CEOs, your sins and decisions impact your companies. Bosses, your sins and decisions impact your employees. A principal's decisions impact his school, a teacher is the classroom, a mayor of the city, a governor his state, a president his country. As a pastor, my sins and decisions impact this church. This is just the way the world works because leadership matters. I don't make the rules. I just say obvious things out loud that everyone in all of human history seems to have agreed with. And that's what you pay me for. Like, the world is bad. Leadership matters. God is good. Sin and failure run in the family of Adam. And that's what we are. We're his family. There's only one solution. We need a new family. We need a new head. We need a new leader. And that's what Jesus came for. He came to be a second Adam, to start a new humanity, to redeem the world. We must be adopted into God's family through Jesus. We must have him as our new covenant head. In him, the world will be remade, reborn. The world was made in glory. It was corrupted in sin. It will be, the sin will be dealt with and the world will be remade in a glory that it's not yet known. We're living in the middle. And our lives as Christians mirror this to a degree. If you have been born again, you've been remade in glory. God considers you to be righteous, and one day you will be perfected, truly righteous, and yet today we live in the middle. We are already, and we are not yet. We're caught in between. And there's a sense in which this world, too, is already and not yet. The redemption of the whole world was purchased by the blood of Jesus. But it's not been realized yet. And so Paul says in Romans, all of creation waits and groans and longs for that day, the day of God's redemption in Jesus. So what characterizes the middle, the in-between? The answer is suffering, pain. Suffering for this world, suffering for everyone in it, and suffering for those who are in Christ too. The social engineers, the Marxists who look at this world and see that sin has messed everything up because we're all selfish jerks, are they wrong about that? No. No. The environmentalists who look at this world and have this vague idea that things aren't quite right, maybe the hurricane shouldn't be wiping away cities, are they wrong? No. No. Where are they wrong? 
Well, they're wrong in saying we can engineer some kind of solution to this problem ourselves. Maybe if we can create some kind of utopia on earth by subverting God's created order in the way God made the world, if we create a perfect system, all the people will be good and all the problems will be solved. Turns out people are the problem, so to make it work, you have to engage in mass genocide. You have to break eggs to make your omelet, and then it still doesn't work. It's just a different way to sin against each other. The environmentalists think that exercise of dominion is the problem, as if mankind is some sort of disease on this planet. We need to return to a state of nature. The problem is that we fail to exercise God's dominion over this world. The answer to suffering is not something we can escape because we can't undo the curse of our own sin. It's futility. The world's been subjected to futility. Our efforts to undo that are futile. We need God to do that. God's the only one who can. And God has done it. For we know that the whole creation, all of it, no escape from the curse, doesn't matter where you go, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the adopt- for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Many of you need to learn to be patient. At our men's group this past Thursday, it was John's turn to tell us about his week, and he said, well, the past two days have been a long month. We need to learn patience. You all feel that way? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we, do not know what to pray, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we groan. We groan. The world groans. All of creation groans. Paul says that all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, ladies. Who's been in the labor and delivery room? How many of you men have been in the labor and delivery room too? I mean to, you know, never mind. I was going to make jokes, but I won't. (laughs) One of the things they tell you as you prepare for the delivery of your first kid is there's there's no dignity in childbirth. And if you try to preserve your dignity, you're just going to make things really hard. Everything will go much better if you just accept from the outset, there's no dignity once we get into this room. And I can scream and moan and groan. People are going to be coming in and out. And I just, I can't care. I can't care. Right? Tell me I'm wrong. I haven't done it. But I've been there. It's true, right? It's true. You need to groan. You need to moan. You need to release the pain. You need to give voice to it. It's cathartic and it actually helps. It actually helps. 
I remember uh, the uh, lady that did this little class for us before we had our first son, just saying, you're going to want to actually moan, not just breathe, but moan, groan, be loud. It will actually help. Here's what Paul says. We're all at the hospital. We're all in the labor and delivery room of a world that's suffering under a curse and yearning for redemption. Something is dying. Something is being born. And the, 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 the line between death and life in the labor and delivery room, it's really thin. It's really thin. It feels like dying. It looks like dying. It sounds like dying. And death is right there the whole way through. Things can go bad. We're all in the labor and delivery room. Things are now in motion that cannot be undone. And we're not there as the doctors or the midwives. We're part of the process. We're all groaning too because we're all in the same position. Something has died. Something has been made new. The job is not done and we're all waiting for the day that the job is over. And it's painful. And this tension that we feel of having evil in our hearts, of living in a world where there's evil, of enduring through it all while the whole of creation groans, is unbearable. It's like childbirth. It's agony. It's pain. And we want an epidural. We just want the drugs. Get us through it. Give us some way to cope. And that's what a lot of the world does. Pick your drug of choice. Give me some cope to get through it. If I can't have an epidural, can I just die? Can it be over with? What is on the other side of this thing? How long? How long? How much longer? There's no way to know. It takes as long as it takes. And that's it. It's hard, it's tiring, it's frustrating. You're living in a world of futility, hitting up against the same sins in ourselves day after day, the same sins in our wives and husbands day after day, the same sins in our children day after day, the same grind at work, the same financial concerns, the same political concerns, and we groan. Inwardly, he says, because our souls are sick, vexed with the evil of the world, vexed with the evil of our own hearts, and longing for the day where we can just be done. When can it be over? We face up against hard things in this life. We lose our mom or our dad. Someone sins against us in a way that causes immense damage. There's adultery. We look at the world, we look at our, the world that our kids are going to inherit, and we don't have words for that. We stumble into the same sins that we've been dealing with for 20 years. We feel like we can get no victory or no escape, and there are no words for that. We just groan. We groan. And we need the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf because we don't have the words. We don't know how to articulate it. We just know that we have a load, a weight that we don't know how to carry and that we feel like it's gonna crush us. 
We need help. And the good news is that God is there for us. The Holy Spirit is there for us to intercede, to put words to our groans because he knows us, he understands us, he's walking with us, and he loves us. And our prayers are heard even when we have no words to pray them. This is a crucial part of the Christian life. God tells us to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. Because sometimes we are overwhelmed. Our burdens seem like they're a million miles above us. They are the ocean and we're at the bottom of the sea. They are a mountain and we're somewhere in the caves beneath the mountain. Lost in the dark. No way out. Don't know what to do or say. And it's especially in those moments, it's crucial in those moments that that's when we turn to God. Even if all we have to offer in prayer is a sigh and a groan. Because if we don't, we will be crushed under the weight. We will. We'll internalize our burdens and we will be crushed by them. Or we'll find a coping mechanism. We'll look for that epidural. Or we'll find somebody to try to pass the pain on to. We'll find ourselves irrationally punishing those we love and pushing the weight we feel onto them. Or all of the above. Sometimes you move from one to the other. You say, okay, I'm going to put away my coping mechanisms. I'm going to try to actually deal with this stuff. And without realizing it, the next thing you know, you're lashing out at everybody close to you. And you get scared and say, isn't it better to just have it buried and have my copes? Can't I just carry these burdens forever? Listen to me. By the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who raised Jesus from the dead, you can be healthy and strong. You. You can be healthy and strong. But you must learn to cast your burdens on the Lord. All of them. This is what David does in the Psalms. It's what he does over and over and over. We have over 100 little instances where David sits down to cast his cares on God as best as he can. He sits down with a pen and paper and he writes. And he tries to articulate them. And sometimes he can't. So then he just describes his groans and his sighs and his tears. I'm weary with my groaning. All night. My bed is a bed of tears. How long? That's about all he's got. How long? Psalm 6. Groanings, too deep for words. How long? The Christian life is a happy life. It's a good life. It's a joyful, hopeful life that is also filled with sadness and sorrow and pain. Joy in the midst of suffering. Hope in the midst of groanings too deep for words. We are in the pains of childbirth. And the pains of, in the pains of childbirth, how does it feel? Like death. Like everything's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and we're going to die and that might just be okay actually. Uh, we watched a movie for one of our podcasts this past week, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Y'all seen that movie? 
Yeah, no? It's like one of you. Okay, it's fine. I don't recommend it. Or, you know, it's, it's a pretty great movie, but I can't recommend it. What's the point of the movie? In the movie, it's the Cold War. We're in a nuclear arms race. I mean, that's the context when the movie was released, right? Cold War. So it's the Cold War. We're in a nuclear arms race with Russia. We don't know when or where or how this whole thing will end. It feels like it's going to end in total world destruction. The tension is unbearable. We're all probably going to die soon. And so the movie plays with this idea of, what if somebody just went ahead and pushed the button and resolved the tension? And then it was over. I don't know. Wouldn't it be kind of nice? Just be done with the tension? And that's where the movie plays. That's the tension the world's in. The Bible says it's like the pain of childbirth. What's on the other side of childbirth, though? What's on the other side of childbirth? New life. New life's on the other side. If it's so bad, and we've had a lot of babies this past year, right? If you had a baby in the last year, raise your hand. Okay, so we had a lot, of, yeah, a lot of babies in the past year. How was it? How was the final trimester? Hard. How were the final couple of weeks? How is labor and delivery? How are things now? Was it worth it? Everybody did that. It's worth it. Yeah, yeah. Worth it? It was worth it. If it's so bad, why do we keep having babies? Because it's worth it. Once you get to the other side, it's worth it. The pain and the suffering isn't worth being compared to the glory of that little baby. New life. And he says, this is the world. This is the world we live in. This is how it is. You're in the labor and delivery room. But on the other side, there's new life. When you look at the world, you need to put on that filter. You need to put on your new baby goggles. The, I know what it's like on the other side of that. Maybe I didn't before, but I do now. And so it's going to be something like that. When you look at the suffering and the pain of the curse, when you look at the political situation we're facing in America, when you look at decisions being made, you're tempted to panic, when you're concerned about your future and your kids and your grandkids, we need to act, yes. We need to do our best to protect our families and our loved ones and our neighbors. We also need to understand that labor pains are hard. And when it's all, in, when it's all said and done, it's going to be worth it. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Redemption is coming for the world. When you look at the pain and suffering of your own life, you need to be able to step back and see the same thing. For the believer, all the suffering and pain you endure is for a purpose. It has good work that God means for it to accomplish in your life. And it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Redemption, new life. And we know that for those who love God, 
How many things? Some things? How many are righteous? None. Not one. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? None. Zero. And for those who love God, how many things? All things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal right there, to be like Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, question, does it feel like all things work together for your good? That doesn't feel that way. Not all the time. Sometimes, maybe. Sometimes. Sometimes it just feels like things keep falling apart. Sometimes it feels like nothing's coming together and that nothing is working for good that we can see. Yeah? Yeah. That's why it's called faith. That's why it takes hope. No one hopes for what he sees, he said earlier. We don't always see how things work together for our good, and some things we may not ever see until we get to the other side of eternity. That's okay. God's facts don't care about our feelings. They don't. God's facts are meant to shape our feelings, to reshape them through faith, through hope, because they do work together, all things. They all work together for our good, all of it, all of the time, without exception. It can be hard to see. It can be hard to trust, but it's true. The longer you live, the more you will see it proved true in this life. And when you get to the next life, there will be surprises. There will be levels to how this all plays out, things that you never saw happen or never got to see happen, things you could have never imagined in our own lives and in the world because God is good and generous. And it's important to remember that we don't always see it. We can't connect the dots and we don't have to. We don't have to make sense of it all. That's not the point. The point is we have one who makes sense of it for us, who's in control. If we forget that, then we'll turn a verse like this into a little chant that teaches us to click our heels and lick our lollipops and pretend like the world's great and deny the pain and suffering of this world as if it's not real. Everything's great. It's all working together for good. Did you just lose a child to miscarriage? Well, all things work together for good. When you take a passage like this, that's deep healing, and you try to treat it like a Band-Aid. No. This passage is deep comfort for those that mourn. It's not a Band-Aid, though. It's not cheap. It's not trivial, and it doesn't promise that we see or understand it all. Just that we have a Father in heaven who does, who loves us, who cares for us, And we can know that there's nothing we deal with in this life that he does not cause to work for good, whether we see it or not, no matter how painful it is. So we don't have to frantically grab for the good in everything bad that happens. Always see the positive side. That's not the point. The point is we can rest in the God who's in control, the God 
Who knows? The God who sees. And we know that he sees and loves us. And that he brings all pain into our lives because there's a weight of glory for us on the other side. We don't have to be the ones in control. We don't have to calculate. We don't have to scheme. We can trust our Father in heaven who loves us. This is a promise you can hold on to in the midst of pain and suffering. You can hold tight to it. And you can hold it out to others who suffer too. For those who love God. But you never hold it out as a band-aid. You hold it out as deep medicine, a promise that we don't have to understand it, but God's in control. God sees and God knows. And then we walk with those who suffer and we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn. But here's the thing about this promise. It is for those and only for those who truly love God. So do you love God? Have you been called according to his purposes? You can't actually take comfort in this promise unless you do. Because God is for his children, and he is all in on his children. But he is opposed to the proud. And you're either one of his children or one of his enemies, and you do not want to be one of his enemies. You don't. There is comfort, and this is comfort for children who have a really, really big dad with really broad shoulders, which means he has to be your father. He has to be your dad. If you've not been adopted into his family, if you're not one of his children, then you are his enemy, and all things are not working together for your good. All things are leading towards your judgment, unless you repent which is what he's calling you to this morning. So what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? He explains, and he's going to open this up better later on for us, but it's really important to understand, especially if we want to really have the comfort of this passage. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's start at the top. First is foreknowledge. Here's what that does not mean. It does not mean that God looked down the vast expanse of history and saw that you would choose him and said, oh, they're going to choose me, so I'm going to choose you. God doesn't work that way. God's not bounded by time. He created it. He stands outside of it. He's in control. He is sovereign. He doesn't experience time. He created time. What the Bible says means when it says that God foreknew you is that he knew you before you knew him. God knew you. He knew who you were. He knew he was going to save you before you were ever born, before he ever made you. He knew you. He knew all of your sins and flaws and failures and weaknesses completely and totally and personally. If you know him, it's because he knew you first. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. There's a word, predestined. Do you believe in predestination? Well, guess what? 
See the word? Do you believe in the Bible? Greek word there for predestined is really tricky, guys. It means predestined, as in destined before. Predetermined. Your destiny, predetermined. That word's used multiple times in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. It means the same things. If you love God, it's because he loved you first. If you chose God, it's because he chose you first. Okay, Jake, what about my free will? Help, <laughs> help. Okay, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But what has Romans taught us so far? Just think about it. We are responsible for our choices, our actions, our sins, right? Our desires. Our actions, our sins are a reflection of our desires. Our desires are a reflection of our nature. The Bible says by nature we are sinners, children of wrath. We can't do anything but sin. What do we need? We need a new nature. Can we give it to ourselves? No. No. The Bible says we have hearts of stone. That's why we need God to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. As he says in Ezekiel, a heart that's alive to God. Can we take out a heart of stone? God's got to do it. The Bible says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. That's why we need to be born again. Can dead men raise themselves from the dead? Can't. Can't do it. Can dead men come to God? No. No. You have to be made alive first. Could Lazarus come forth from the tomb on his own? No. No, only if he was called. Who chose first, Lazarus or Jesus? There are more bodies in that tomb. Jesus came to Lazarus, and he called him, Lazarus, come forth. And then Lazarus got up and came. So what about our free will? Well, you have it. Left to yourself, you choose sin. Left to yourself, you choose death. Left to yourself, you choose hell. If you choose, that's the choice you make. That's what Romans 3 says. How many are righteous? None. Not one. How many seek for God? None. Go back and reread it. We talked about it. How many seek for God? None. Why? Dead in sins and trespasses, that's why. Left to ourselves, we're toast. Our hearts are stone. Our souls are dead, buried in the tomb, just like Lazarus. And so here's what happened if you've been called by God. You were lying dead in a tomb of your own making. And God, who knew you before the foundation of the earth, who predestined you for glory, came and called you by name. And just like Lazarus, you got up, and you set your grave clothes aside, and you stepped out into the light. We don't seek God 
God seeks us. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and then life came, and the gift of faith was given to you by God. And that's why in Ephesians, Paul goes out of his way to say, even your faith isn't your own doing. It's a gift. He gave it to you because you didn't have it. You needed it. You were lost. So he gave you the faith that he required. And you believed. And you were justified. And if God knew you before the foundation of the earth and predestined you for glory and called you from the tomb and justified you, you're just as good as glorified. And it's only a question of where you're at on the timeline. Jake, that doesn't feel fair. That's right, it's not. Not by your standard of fair. What's fair? Hell, judgment. But we're talking about grace. We're talking about grace. I want my choice. I want my free will. Do you? Your choices are kind of dumb. Y'all have kids. Y'all are parents. Left to themselves, it's mac and cheese and Skittles all day. And nobody's wearing pants. And they're coloring on the walls. And I'm just talking about the high schoolers. <laughs> You're constantly overriding the choices of your children for their own good because you love them. My toddler ran into the swimming pool. I better not violate his free choice. No, you go, you reach, and you pull him out. And that's what God does. Because all of us are like, Let's go drown ourselves in the swimming pool. And God says, no. Because I knew you and I set my love on you. I saved you. I'm the one who does the saving. It's good that our salvation is in better hands than our own. So how does it all work? There's a call. It's happening right now. I'm preaching. This is God's call to you. You could be anywhere else in the world, but for whatever reason, maybe against your will, you're here. You're here. You could have been anywhere else. God brought you here. You're hearing his word preached to you. He is calling you to repent of your sins and to come to him and to love him as your father in heaven. That's the gospel call. We take it to the ends of the earth. And then there's an internal call, that work of the Holy Spirit that only he can do when he gives you new life, when you're born again, that spark of faith happens. You wake up, you realize all this stuff that we've been doing, it's real. It's all true. It's always been true. And everybody here actually believes it and means it. And you've been asleep and you thought we were playing, but we're not. We never have been. The singing isn't a performance, it's worship of our Father in heaven. The preaching isn't a show to make us feel good about ourselves. It's the word of the living God to sinners who need a savior. And now God's calling to you to come, to believe, to repent of your sins, to wake up, to join the living. Do you groan under the weight of the curse of sin? Under the futility of it all? the sufferings of this life? Do you have groans that are too deep for words? There is a Father in heaven 
who wants to bear your burdens and who is calling you to come to him and to cast your cares on him. So come and join those who love God. Join those who have been called according to his purpose and receive the comfort of having a father in heaven who loves you, who knows you, and causes everything, all things, all of it, to work together, even your suffering, even the worst things that have ever happened to you and the worst things you've ever done to work together for your good. Come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've not left us to ourselves, that you are a good father who loves us and who reaches down and changes our hearts. Pray that you would do that work now that you would lead us all to repentance and faith and newness of life in Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.